Our scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the great, their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling for you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. I forgot to do a sound check this morning, so is this, this is on. Sounds like it? Okay, good. Well, uh, I don't know how many know this about my past, but from when I was about 24 till 31-ish, uh, I taught high school and junior high math. And it was during that time that I saw this interesting thing uh, about mathematics. And it, it sets math, in my mind at least, apart from any other discipline that you can teach or study 
uh, science, English, whatever, whatever it is, world studies. And the reason it makes it different is you can visibly see when a concept clicks in the mind of a student. So I'd work out a problem from, from top to bottom, like do this one new concept and work it out. Had I right then just been like, all right, you guys get it, go. Students could follow the step-by-step -step math, but doing it all themselves was like, they're not there yet. And so we do a couple examples and then working with a student that was still, after seeing two or three examples, still not getting it. If I sat down with them, like they're lost, it was like a visible light bulb goes off and, and the, on their face, like, oh, I totally get it now. And then they can work it out themselves. And I, I got to see this, I got to experience that uh, so many times myself. And the most memorable one for me was in Calc 2, calculus, like the second semester of calculus. And the reason that it's so memorable is because I flunked. Like straight up, F is on my transcript. Um, the only F, I want to say, the only F on my transcript, but uh, straight on F is on my transcript. And the reason that I flunked was not because I wasn't doing my homework or going to class or trying my very hardest. I was like, it received all of my attention. And even with all of that, I flunked because I, it just was not clicking in my mind for like two weeks. And then after two weeks of just laboring over any given concept, it finally clicked. And so the second time I took calculus, I did far better so you, why am, I, why am I bringing this up? Uh, the reason is because I think this is what we're seeing in part in our text today. Uh, you, you may be thinking to yourself, this, this text, if you've been here for the last month at least, if you're new here, you're like, no, it's not a new text, it's from Mark chapter 10. I've read it before, but what I mean is in chapter nine, there's almost an identical progression that, that we just worked through about a month ago. So if you flip back there and look at chapter nine, it's in verses 30 through 37. Jesus foretells of his death at, in chapter nine. It's the second time he's done it. So we saw that in our text today. He foretells of his death and that is followed in chapter nine by the disciples squabbling, arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. They're jockeying for position and power and prestige among the disciples. And so same thing in our text today, the disciples are jockeying like James and John are trying to get like a position of honor. And then Jesus teaches and in, in chapter nine, he brings a child in their midst uh, today. He, he talks about leadership, but in chapter nine, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So incredibly similar progression of events that we just worked through. So if Mark was writing and, and submitted this transcript to a publisher today, I wonder if the publisher would say, you know what, this is really redundant. You're, you're repeating the same thing, like omit the redundancy and just stick with the one story, let it speak for itself. But just like math, just like uh, any other concept, sometimes we need to hear it time and time again for it to really sink in and to see. And the, the temptation, I think, for us is to, to look down on the disciples, to look down on James and John. You'd be like, how ridiculous of you to think that you could sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Or look back at chapter 9 and to look at them and go, how absurd for you to be arguing about who is the greatest among you when you're in the presence of Jesus, 
Like, that should melt away. But in studying and prepping, um, I just see in my own heart, even, even this morning in an additional example of how I do the very same thing. So this morning, I, I want us not to look down upon the disciples because we are meant to see ourselves in them and in their responses, that they're not absurd, that this very same things that we see in them are going on inside of us. So that's what I want us to, to focus on is, is how, how is this, how am I doing the same things that we see the disciples doing? And I also, coupled with that, is to see, uh, to remember that the, there's great hope here because the disciples, Jesus doesn't leave them and just like throw up his hands and like, give me a new 12. I need, <laughs> let's, these, these 12 are a lost cause at this point. Uh, 11 of those 12, save Judas, go on to incredible acts of faith and acts of service. And, and it's on their, their testimonies that our faith is built. So there's great hope for us, even, even in looking at my own life and my own heart and, and bad thinking. He's not done. He was, he's not done with the disciples in this case. He's not done with us. He continues to sanctify them just as he does with us. Uh, and I will say that this is not a perfect duplicate of what is in chapter 9. So if you're like, okay, cool. I already got this lesson three or four weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to go shopping. Don't, because there's, <laughs> there's still some good new, new things in here. Um. I titled this sermon, Following Jesus, and that seems really cliche, but you guys probably know this about me. I'm not terribly clever when it comes to things like this. I'm not good with alliteration. I'm not great with these. And I sat there and I really tried, like, what can I call this that doesn't feel so cliche? And I couldn't come up with anything. And even though it is cliche, like, it is so applicable. This passage is bookended by literal following of Jesus, and everything in the middle is all about following Jesus. So... It's not clever, but it is accurate. Uh, verse 32, the, the front end of the bookend, it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Literally, they're following Jesus. And then at the very end, the other bookmark, or bookend is with Bartimaeus and it says that uh, he immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So it's bookended and all pieces in between are all about following Jesus. And one of the things that Don does is, that I find really helpful, is coming up with um, a, kind of a one-sentence summary. And so I'm taking a page out of Don's book, and this is my attempt at the, the one-sentence summary, is to know Jesus is to follow him, even on the way to servanthood and suffering. So let's, uh, let's, let's pray. Let me pray, um, and then we will look at this passage more in depth. Lord, uh, would you open our eyes like you did for Bartimaeus? Would you help us to be humble like you and give us, give us your truth that it would just be written on our hearts that we could act as servants uh, as you call us to. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and the work that you do, that you don't leave us in confusion and in our own self-serving attitudes, but you draw us to something greater. Uh, and lead by example. We, we thank you for that, Lord. Would you be with us now? Um, I pray. Amen. Well, this is the third time, the third and final time that Jesus is foretelling of his death and resurrection. 
and it's more detailed than he's been before. And I think the point is that Jesus knows with crystal clarity exactly what he's, where he's headed. It says he's like new details. He'll be handed over to the scribes and Pharisees and they will sentence him to death. He'll then be handed over to the Gentiles who will, it says, mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him and then he will rise again. It is crystal clear to Jesus that he knows what, why they're going to Jerusalem. And the disciples, it says, uh, and the people following him are afraid and they are amazed. And it was interesting in our life group discussion this past week, like what were those, why were they afraid? Why were they amazed? It was just a fascinating conversation. But Jesus, I think it is equally fascinating that he is, he is out front. He is leading the way. What a different picture it would be if he was trailing behind and they're having to like pull him towards Jerusalem. As he's like dragging his feet as one condemned to the gallows, that's just not the picture that we have. He's not hanging onto every tree branch or grabbing every threshold and digging in his fingernails into it. He's, he's not, he's not resisting it. He's not reluctant. He doesn't run the opposite direction from his calling like Jonah. He doesn't arm himself and surround himself with mighty men like David did. There's no fight or flight or freeze response in this, even though he knows what he's going to do. And he knows that he's going into the lion's den of everybody that is coming after him to persecute him, to kill him. He knows it. No fight, no flight, no freeze. So what is there? There is submission. There's submission because this is the Father's will. He's submitting to something because he has such trust that God the Father's plans are good. His eyes are fixed on what will be accomplished. And then, following this, James and John, I think this text got really messed up here. So I'm just gonna skip that part uh, as, as far as the slide. James and John come to Jesus with this absurd request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And just for fun, I tried this with my kids as I was preparing. Like, Hadley, I want you to do for me whatever I ask you. Brooks, whatever I say next, you have to say yes, okay? And, and their, their responses were pretty entertaining. You should try it with uh, your coworkers or your boss or spouse or your kids. It is, it's awesome. But Jesus responds like none of them did. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And they respond, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Uh, you may want to think, like the most charitable way that you could read this is that James and John want proximity to Jesus. Kind of this we just, we love being with you. We feel filled when we're with you. Don't like kind of that Jack, don't ever let me go moment um, that we just want to be close to you. Will you promise that we will always get to be close to you? But, but make no mistake, that's, that is not what's happening here. Uh, in their day, there was the seat of honor and the seat to the right of that place of honor. Let's see, the right of that place of honor was the most honored 
next to the center seat and the one to the left is the next most honored. They were unmistakably jockeying for the same things that they were doing before, the greatest. Who's the greatest? They think they are. They want those two seats. That's what's going on. The most, so that's the most charitable thing, and, and, and that's not the case. We can be generous, though, here and say what they do recognize is that Jesus is the Messiah. They see him. They've, they've seen his works. They know who he is, and they can say, like, you are going to be enthroned in your glory and so that's, that's really good. They've gotten there with Jesus. But they're still wanting to exalt themselves. We want you to give us whatever we ask. They haven't submitted their lives like Jesus has to the Father. Their desires haven't changed. They're viewing Jesus as the means to get what they want, the fame, the glory, the esteem of themselves, the means to the treasure, not the treasure itself, like we saw last week. And, and it is humbling, it's embarrassing to recognize that I often catch myself doing that same thing, just like the rich young ruler last week, just like James and John this week. And in response to James and John, we see two very different uh, responses, reactions to their request. The first is from the 10 disciples in verse 41. It says that when, they, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Their request, James and John's request, totally dishonors the other disciples. You guys are not as important as we are, clearly, so we need to be in those two seats of honor and prestige. Everybody else was therefore pretty angry, frustrated, hurt, dishonored. And they, they come, they're like ready to come off the top rope at James and John. And I imagine the scene is a lot of finger pointing and furrowed brows and escalating voices as they are just like, Did, are you kidding me? Did you really just say that to Jesus? And I, that, to me, that's a very understandable reaction. That's my reaction. When I see something in unjust or in my people around me, I just want to be like, are you even joking right now? How about you not say that? But Jesus, while he has every right to be indignant, because he was more dishonored than the disciples were in this interaction, his reaction is, is so gentle. In verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's like, oh, my little children, you don't even know what you're asking. And then he uses the opportunity to teach them. He's tender, he's calm, he defers to the Father's authority and then and it submits to the Father's plans, but then he uses this opportunity to teach. Uh, last time, chapter 9, Jesus brings this child in, in their midst when they're squabbling and arguing for power and prestige. This time he contrasts leadership. He contrasts the leadership of the world versus the leadership of, of the kingdom of God. The fallen and corrupted and selfish and sinful leadership that we see exercised all around us and then the leadership that he actually designed and that he exemplifies and exercises daily with them. He says in verse 42, 
you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. The paradigm of the world around them then and now, it's this domineering, authoritarian uh, way of leading. It's about position, prestige. You respect me because I'm in this position. It's a self-serving power. And by contrast, he says in verses 43 and 44, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. The leadership of those who follow Jesus is a self-sacrificing leadership. It's in service to all. The more you serve others in a self-sacrificing way, according to Jesus, the greater you will be. As you lay down your own life, you pour yourself out for the sake of others, to build them up, to provide for them, to lift their spirits, work for their comfort and joy, you become greater. This is not in the sense of an elevate, greater in an elevated position. This is greater in the eyes of God who can use you all the more. It is radically different than the world teaches. The economy of the world here is just flipped on its head. There's nothing, nothing that, that even is similar. To be great, make yourself lowly. But according, or the greatest leaders according to the Almighty are those who serve others by doing the will of the Father. And Jesus gives a simple defense for this paradigm. He doesn't go into a lengthy monologue. He doesn't teach in a parable here. Thankfully, it's not a three paragraph or a three points in five paragraphs because that would have made this reading even longer for Katie. Um, and there's no ethical reason. The, the reason that he provides that this is the way that it is is in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His only reason for leadership being the way it is, for greatness being found in services because it's what he does. The all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe serves, makes himself lowly. And if he can do it, that's what we're supposed to do too. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. This is such a good parallel to what, what Jesus is saying here. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 I don't know if I have, if we can fix that slide and, and pull it up or not. But it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the exact same progression of what it means to be great is you become lowly. And in so doing, your greatness abounds. That's, that is the life that Jesus lived. 
and he's calling us to do the same thing. It is the heart of God to serve. And in verse 45, he became a servant. Why? To save his people. He gave his son as a ransom. A ransom. That means if there's a ransom, that there's captivity. We are captive apart from, from Christ. Captives can't save themselves. They need a rescuer because they're bound. In our flesh, outside of Christ, we're captive to sin. And it's only in him that, that our bonds are loosened, that the captivity is removed, and we find our freedom in him alone. And as those who are freed, we are called to similarly, similarly then go serve. As we serve others, we're leading like Jesus did. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. There is something in serving others that shines light into our world, light into the darkness, and points people to the hope that is found in Jesus. It's, it's service to others. It's what Jesus did. It's what his followers have done for centuries. It's what we're called to do as well. And then in the, the final paragraph, it may seem unrelated. This, this, oh, okay, another healing of another blind guy. It seems just like, why, I wonder why they tack that on. It is, I think it's absolutely related to the rest of our text. So Jesus heals this blind man named Bartimaeus. And just if you're a Bible trivia person, and the question is, what is the name of the the only name that's given in any of the synoptic gospels of the person being healed, this is it. This is the one time we get to know the person's name. Kind of interesting. I don't know quite what to make of that. But I can tell you this. Uh, his name, Bartimaeus, Bar is without, Timaeus is cleanliness. So Bartimaeus is this man without cleanliness. He is, in many ways, the polar opposite of the rich young ruler that we saw. He has nothing. He can't say, like, I've done all these things well. He doesn't have this treasure trove of wealth that, that Jesus is telling him he need to get rid of. He is opposite from the rich young ruler, and he's, he's part of the story of what Jesus does here. So Jesus and his disciples, along with this great crowd, are walking through Jericho, and it doesn't tell us exactly what they do there, but they kind of pass through. And as they're walking out of town... They pass by this guy Bartimaeus, who is just a beggar on the side of the road, a blind beggar. He is sidelined, unclean, without hope, reduced to begging. He's this marginalized person in their society. And Bartimaeus hears this crowd going before him, can't see anything, but somehow puts together that this is Jesus of Nazareth that apparently he's heard about. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Just like James and John, there is, there is recognition that this is the Messiah, that there's something extra special. He's the Savior. James and John did that. Bartimaeus does that in this, in this call, son of David. But people try and silence him. Like, hey, shh, knock it off. Jesus is a busy man. Or, shh, knock it off. You are too unclean. You're too far gone. Jesus doesn't have time for you. I love what, what one, of, one of the guys in our life group this, this past week, 
said when we were talking about this. He said, if anybody ever tries to silence you when you're crying out to Jesus, you know, don't, don't take that to God. Don't, you're too far gone. That sin is too much for Jesus to handle. You are too unclean. What, do what Bartimaeus does. Cry out all the more. Do not be silenced. Don't be shushed. Because you're going to the right source. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as this, this group that he can't see is walking along, Jesus stops, dead in his tracks. And that is remarkable. This marginalized, poor beggar bringing nothing to the table, Jesus stops and calls to him. It's also remarkable to me what he says to him because it's the same thing he said to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? It's exactly the same question. James and John said, grant us position and power. Bartimaeus just says, let me see again. James and John wanted extraordinary glory. Bartimaeus just wants ordinary health. So Jesus heals Bartimaeus and he cites his faith that his faith has made him well. And it's another incredible healing done by the Lord, which resulted in another soul following Jesus. So what are, what are we supposed to do with this text then? How do, we, how do we apply this and just not have it be something that we read on a Sunday? Like, how do we just let it sink down into us? Um, Katie and I were reminiscing about a trip that we took, I think it was three years ago, to the Grand Canyon. We were so excited. I've never been there. And we, we got there and the weather was just garbage. I mean, it was rainy, sleety, snowy. Um, it was actually spring break. And we showed up and you couldn't see anything. We get to like one of the most famous overlooked spots. And the only thing that was at all noteworthy was that it just looked like the earth ended and dropped off. Because you couldn't see 20 feet. It was, it was just socked in with fog and felt very much like nuts. I really wanted to see this. All rats. And we, thankfully we had another day. And so we went back the next day and the wind had come and blown everything out. And so we went to the same spot and it was unbelievable that we couldn't see what was out in front of us. Because the next day it was like expansive. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it feels like the painting of it is right before you. Like you, it's just depth perception is gone. It's so grand. It's so glorious. It's just like learning math. Like when, when, things, when things click and the fog is lifted and, and you can finally see. It's the same. So that's what we need. We need, we need God to like lift the fog, to cleanse our eyes, to heal our eyes like Bartimaeus, to have it click in our mind. Snap into focus the, the glory that is spread out before us in what it means. Because being a servant is, feels inglorious. It doesn't feel like our flesh just longs for more than that. But the greatness is found in being a servant. And I, I've been troubled by <clears throat> Jesus's, I guess troubled is the wrong word, convicted of Jesus's identical questions in our text here. What do you want me to do for you? 
James and John were hoping, I think, to honor Christ as they honored themselves too. In this commentary, I, I can't phrase it any better than what this said, and it just uh, like twisted me up this as I prepared. The commentary says this, how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest, or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. And I just see that time and time again. Uh, for instance, this last week, um, I got to help with a promotional test for work. And because of a mistake that we made, we had to scrap plan A and with short amount of time, rewrite the whole test, which is, that just takes a lot of time and it kind of fell on my plate. And so I scrapped the plans that I had that day. I rewrote this whole test. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm being a servant. I'm, I'm using some of the gifts that God has given me to, to create a fair test for those that are gonna be taking it. Um, I'm blessing the fire department as a good employee by putting forward my time well. And yet in my heart, it was not a servant's attitude. It was, I'm going to look really good here. I'm going to make myself, people are going to see what I bring to the table and they're really going to like what they see. And hopefully my stock rises in everybody's book a little bit. As I seek to honor the Lord, I'm, I'm wanting that seat right next to him rather than just disappear disappear into the background, serve like he did. Even more convicting, as I prepared this message, I'm wanting to be faithful to the text. I'm wanting to, to let, to make, be, exalt Christ in this, that he would be made much of. And yet in my heart, I also see a desire that, that, you would see me as a gifted preacher, as a good teacher, as somebody that can speak well. I want my, I want it, I want that place of honor right next to Jesus. Like, would you, would you just help me get up kind of next to you for my own glory too? And it is, it is shameful. It's, it's ugly. It's not for God's glory alone this healthy dash of my own self-interest. So I, I repent before you. I, and and the, I think the right response is what Bartimaeus had. Like, Jesus, have mercy on me. We don't need to be positionally powerful to be influential in our world. We don't need to be exalted before others. We need our eyes opened. We need that click moment, that fog lifting being willing to lay down our lives just as he did for the sake of others. Not fighting with fists or ammunition or anger, sharp insults, stabbing words, love, self, and, and, and in service to others. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's the way of Christ. It's meek and lowly, humble in spirit, grounded in this identity that can't be shaken by whatever comes. In this text, we see Jesus for the joy that is set before him, marching onward to Jerusalem. He knows exactly what awaits him there. The disciples still don't understand. They're going to betray him in his time of greatest need. And still, they aren't forsaken. Jesus doesn't abandon them. 
They're being redeemed as they submit their lives to him in service to one another and to those around them. Jesus is going to use them for mighty works as they become lowlier, as they become greater servants. And our faith is built upon their bold testimonies. Their eyes are being opened right along with Bartimaeus. I want that for myself. I want that for all of us, that Jesus would heal us, that we can see, that we can see this, this life of service that he calls us to is a good thing. And that though suffering may come, the reward is great. So may we follow Jesus with eyes open to where he is leading, even if sometimes that, that includes suffering, even if that includes hard service. And it is in the, the tradition of, of Table Rock, and it is uh, just good and right to remember Jesus in communion. And we do it just about every week, but I don't, none of us want communion, even though we do it weekly, to be something that is rote, that's just like, oh, this is, this is something, yeah, we do this all the time. But to enter into it with, with reverence, bringing to mind that the incarnate God ransomed us. He paid the price for our freedom. That's what we get to do. So if you're a believer that Jesus is, is who he says he is, he is the Christ, the savior of the world, that his, he died and was resurrected, then we invite you to please take communion with us. But if, if you don't place your faith there, then just let those pass and, and instead use the time to consider what stands in the way. What stands in the way? What's the barrier that would, that would keep you from saying, I, he is who I think he is. Everything I see out of him is good. If there's no objections left, use the time to pray to him that he would forgive you. Cry out to him like Bartimaeus. Have mercy on him. And he, that maybe you, like Bartimaeus, will have your eyes opened to his, his glory because it truly is glorious. So let me pray, then we will sing a little bit and, and take communion together. Just hold on to communion until we all partake of it together. Lord God, thank you that you are the, the opener of eyes. I pray that, that you would continue your work in us. Would you help us to be servants like you are? In our flesh, it is hard. It is, it's hard to do the work and it's hard to sort through just the, the remaining sin in our lives that, that want to exalt ourselves instead of solely exalting you. So would you cleanse us of that, Lord? Refine us so that all that is left is, is you shining through as the true light. Would your word be written on our hearts and your, your praises be on our lips, we pray. Amen.
Well, in, in communion, what we're remind, remembering is that it is Jesus' joy to ransom us. It was the purpose that he was born and, and taught and lived and then died was so that we could be free, free from our captivity, captivity to sin, that we could find our joy in him. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread with his disciples and he gave thanks for it and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then when we eat it, we are to remember him and his sacrifice for us. So let's eat in remembrance of Jesus. And that same night he took the cup and he again gave thanks and he said to his disciples, this is, this is the cup of the new covenant. And all of the wrath that was due us for our sin, Jesus had poured out on him. He received the wrath that we were due so that we now had this new relationship with, with the Father and with Jesus, that we could be made right, that we could receive his righteousness for our sinfulness. And so when we drink this, we're remembering this new covenant that we have, this covenant that allows us to have fellowship with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's drink in remembrance of what Jesus bought for us. God, thank you. Thank you that, that we could be in fellowship with you through your servanthood to us. How mind-blowing that you, as, as the creator of all things, humbled yourself into our likeness so that we could be with you. We thank you for the joy, for the, the hope that we have in you. Be glorified, we pray. In your name, amen.